by Marion Zimmer Bradley. This episode of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by Copper Cow Coffee. Pour over Vietnamese coffee. Hey, whenever you get to go back to the break room, be the coolest person in the break room with some pour over coffee. Or impress your children like I do. Dusseldorf and Barbacoa love watching me pour coffee into a thing and then dump that into a pint glass of ice. Uh, yeah, they do. They, they find it fascinating as, as, as much as like when I like make creme brulee with a blowtorch. Uh, Color of Space, Marion Zimmer Bradley. Uh, there's going to be quite a few of them. Should be about seven or eight episodes. And that'll bring us into the first week of January. Hope you're having a good 2022. Wow, it's such a future date. I didn't, I didn't, anyway. Uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I am your host, D.B. Spitzer. Check out the show notes. Find out how to help support the show. Go to pgttcm.com. Check out everything we have to offer. We're on Apple uh, Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on YouTube. Check us out. The Colors of Space, Chapter 9. The crews of repairmen were working down in the hull, and the swift wing was a hell of clanging noise and shuddering heat. Maintenance was working overtime, but the rest of the crew, with nothing to do, stood around in the recreation rooms, tried to play games, curse the heat and the dreary dimness through the viewports, and twitched at the boiler factory racket from the holds. Toward the end of the third day, the biologist reported air, water, and gravity well within tolerable limits, and Captain Varangil issued permission for anyone who liked to go outside and have a look around. Bart had a sort of ship-induced claustrophobia. It was good to feel solid ground under his feet and the rays of a sun, even a green sun, on his back. Even more, it was good to get away from the constant presence of his shipmates. During this enforced idleness, their presence oppressed him unendurably. So many tall forms, gray skins, feathery crests. He was always alone. For a change, he felt that he'd like to be alone without Lorry all around him. But as he moved away from the ship, Ring dropped out of the hatchway and hailed him. Where are you going? Just for a walk? Ring drew a deep breath of weariness. That sounds good. Mind if I come along? Bart did, but all he could say was, If you like. How about let's get some food from the rations clerk and do some exploring? The sun overhead was a clear greenish gold, the sky strewn with soft pale clouds that cast racing shadows on the soft grass underfoot, fragrant pinkish-yellow stuff strewn with bright vermilion puffballs. 
Bart wished he were alone to enjoy it. How are the repairs coming? Pretty good, but Carol got his hand half scorched off, poor fellow. Just luck the same thing didn't happen to me, Ring added. You know that Mentorian, the young one, the medic's assistant? I've seen her. Her name's Maida, I think. Suddenly, Bart wished the Mentorian girl were with him here. It would be nice to hear a human voice. Oh, is it a female? Mentorians all look alike to me, Ring said, while Bart controlled his face with an effort. Be that as it may, she saved me from having the same thing happen. I was just going to lean against a strip of sheet metal when she screamed at me. Do you think they can really see heat vibrations? She called it red hot. They had reached a line of tall cliffs where a steep rockfall divided off the plain from the edge of the mountains. A few slender, drooping, gold-leaved trees bent graceful branches over a pool. Bard stood fascinated by the play of green sunlight on the emerald ripples, but Ring flung himself down full length on the soft grass and sighed comfortably. Feels good. Too comfortable to eat? They munched in companionable silence. Look, said Ring at last, pointing toward the cliffs. Holes in the rocks. Caves. I'd like to explore them, wouldn't you? They look pretty gloomy to me. Probably full of monsters. Ring patted the hilt of his energon ray. This will handle anything short of an armor-plated saurian. Bart shuddered. As part of uniform, he too had been issued one of the energon rays but he had never used it and didn't intend to. Just the same, I'd rather stay out here in the sun. It's better than vitamin lamps, Ring admitted, even if it's not very bright. Bart wondered, suddenly and worriedly, about the effects of green sunburn on his chemically altered skin tone. Well, let's enjoy it while we can, Ring said because it seems to be clouding over. I wouldn't be surprised if it rained. He yawned. I'm getting bored with this voyage, and yet I don't want it to end, because then I'll have to fight it out all over again with my family. My father owns a hotel, and he wants me in the family business, not 500 light years away. None of our family have ever been spacemen before, he explained and they don't understand that living on one planet would drive me out of my mind. He sighed. How did you explain it to your people, that you couldn't be happy in the mud? Or are you a career man? I guess so. I never thought about doing anything else, Bart said slowly, ring story having touched him. He had never realized quite so fully how much alike the two races were how human the lhari problems and dreams could seem. Why, of course the lhari aren't all spacemen. They have hotel keepers and garbage men and dentists just as we do. Funny, you never think of them except in space. My mother died when I was very young, Bart said, choosing his words very carefully. My father owned a fleet of interplanetary ships, but you wanted the real thing, deep space, 
the stars, Ring said. How did he feel about that? He would have understood, Bart said, unable to keep emotion out of his voice. But he's dead now. He died not long ago. Ring's eyes were bright with sympathy. While you were off on the drift? Bad luck, he said gently. He was silent, and when he spoke again, it was in a very different tone. But some of the older generation... I had a professor in training school, funny old chap, bald as the hull of the Swiftwing, taught us cosmic ray analysis, and what he didn't know about the spiral nebulae could be engraved in my fifth toe claw, and he'd never been off the face of the planet, not even to one of the moons. He was the supervisor of my student lodge, and oh, was he a... Uh, the phrase Ring used meant literally a soft piece of cake. His feet may have been buried in mud, but his head was off in the great nebula. We had some wild times, Ring reminisced. We'd slip away to the city, strictly against rules. It was an old-style school, and draw lots for one of us to stay home and sign in for all twelve. You see, he'd sit there reading, and when one of us came in, just shove the wax at us with his nose in a text on cosmic dust, never looking up. So, the one who stayed home would scrawl a name on it, walk out the back door, come around, and sign in again. When there were twelve signed in, of course, the old chap would go up to bed, and late that night, the one who stayed in would sneak down and let us in. Ring sat up suddenly, touching his cheek. Was that a drop of rain? And the sun's gone. I suppose we ought to start back, though I hate to leave those caves unexplored. Bart bent to gather up the debris of their meal. He flinched as something hard struck his arm. Ouch! What was that? Ring cried out in pain. It's hail! Sharp pieces of ice were suddenly pelting, raining down all around them, splattering the ground with a harsh, bouncing clatter. Ring yelled, Come on, it's big enough to flatten you. It looked to Bart as if it were at least golf ball size and seemed to be getting bigger by the moment. Lightning flashed around them in sudden glare. They ducked their heads and ran. Get in under the lee of the cliffs. We wouldn't possibly make it back to the swift. Ring's voice broke off in a cry of pain. He slumped forward, pitched to his knees, then slid down and lay still. What's the matter? Bart, arm curved to protect his skull, bent over the fallen lorry. But Ring, his forehead bleeding, lay insensible. Bart felt sharp pain in his arm, felt the hail hard as thrown stones raining on his head. Ring was out cold. If they stayed in this, Bart thought despairingly, they'd both be dead. Crouching, trying to duck his head between his shoulders, Bart got his arms under Ring's armpits and half-carried, half-dragged him under the lee of the cliffs. He slipped and slid on the thickening layer of ice underfoot, lost his footing, and came down hard, one arm twisted between himself and the cliff. He cried out in pain, uncontrollably, and let Ring slip from his grasp. The lorry boy lay like the dead. Bart bent over him, breathing hard. 
trying to get his breath back. The hail was still pelting down, showing no signs of lessening. About five feet away, one of the dark gaps in the cliff showed wide and menacing, but at least, Bart thought, the hail couldn't come in there. He stooped and got hold of Ring again. A pain like fire went through the wrist he had smashed against the rock. He set his teeth, wondering if it had broken. The effort made him see stars, but he managed to somehow hoist Ring up again and haul him through the pelting hail toward the yawning gap. It darkened around them, and blessedly, the battering, bruising hail could not reach them. Only an occasional light splinter of ice blew with the bitter wind into the mouth of the cave. Bart laid Ring down on the floor, under the shelter of the rock ceiling. He knelt beside him and spoke his name, but Ring just moaned. His forehead was covered with blood. Bart took one of the paper napkins from the lunch sack and carefully wiped some of it away. His stomach turned at the deep, ugly cut, which immediately started oozing fresh blood. He pressed the edges of the cut together with the napkin, wondering helplessly how much blood Ring could lose without danger, and if he had concussion. If he tried to go back to the ship and fetch the medic for Ring, he'd be struck by Hale himself. From where he stood, it seemed that the hailstones were getting bigger by the minute. Ring moaned, but when Bart knelt beside him again, he did not answer. Bart could hear only the rushing of wind, the noise of the splattering hail, and a sound of water somewhere. Or was that a rustle of scales, a dragging of strange feet? He looked through the darkness into the depths of the cave his hand on his shock beam. He was afraid to turn his back on it. This is nonsense, he told himself firmly. I'll just walk back there and see what there is. At his belt, he had the small flash lamp, excessively bright, that was, like the Energon beam shocker, a part of regulation equipment. He took it out, shining it on the back wall of the cave then drew a long breath of startlement and for a moment forgot Ring and his own pain. For the back wall of the cave was an exquisite fall of crystal. Minerals glowed there, giant crystals, like jewels, crusted with strange lichen-like growths and colors. There were pale blues and greens, and shimmering among them, a strangely colored crystalline mineral that he had never seen before. It was blue. No, Bart thought. That's just the light. It's more like red. No, it can't be like both of them at once. And it isn't really like either. In this light... Ring moaned, and Bart, glancing round, saw that he was struggling to sit up. He ran back to him, dropping to his knees at Ring's side. It's all right, Ring. Lie still. We're under cover now. What happened? Ring said blurrily. Head hurts. All sparks. All the pretty lights. Can't see you. He fumbled with loose, uncoordinated fingers at his head, and Bart grabbed at him before he poked a claw in his eye. Don't do that, Ring complained. Can't see. He must have a bad concussion then. That's a nasty cut. Gently, he restrained the Lhari boy's hands. 
Bartol, what happened? Bart explained. Ring tried to move, but fell limply back. Weren't you hurt? I thought I heard you cry out. A cut or two, but nothing serious, Bart said. I think the hail stopped. Lie still. I'd better go back to the ship and get help. Give me a hand and I can walk, Ring said. But when he tried to sit up, he flinched. And Bart said, You'd better lie still. He knew that head injury should be kept very quiet. He was almost afraid to leave Ring for fear the lorry boy would have another delirious fit and hurt himself. But there was no help for it. The hail had stopped and the piled heaps were already melting, but it was bitterly cold. Bart wrapped himself in the silvery cloak, glad of its warmth, and struggled back across the slushy, ice-strewn meadow that had been so pink and flowery in the sunshine. The Swiftwing, a monstrous dark egg looming in the twilight, seemed like home. Bart felt the heavenly warmth close around him with a sigh of pure relief. But the second officer, coming up the hatchway, stopped in consternation. You're covered with blood. The hailstorm. I'm all right, Bart said, but Ring's been hurt. You'll need a stretcher. Quickly, he explained. I'll come with you and show you. You'll do no such thing, the officer said. You look as if you've been caught out in a meteor shower, Feathertop. We can find the place. You go and have those cuts attended to. And... What's wrong with your wrist? Broken? Bart heard, like an echo, the frightening words, Don't break any bones. You won't pass an x-ray. It's all right, sir. When I get washed up, that's an order, snapped the officer. Do you think, on this pestilential, unlucky planet, we can afford any more bad luck? Metals fatigue. Carol burns so badly the medic thinks he may never use his hand again. And now you and Ring getting yourselves laid up and out of action? The medic will help me with Ring. That Mentorian girl can look after you. Get moving! He hurried away, and Bart, his head beginning to hurt, walked slowly up the ramp. His whole arm felt numb, and he supported it with his good hand. In the small infirmary, Carol lay groaning in a bunk, his arm bound in bandages his head moving from side to side. The Mentorian girl, Meta, turned, charging a hypo. She looked pale and drawn. She went to Carol, uncovering his other arm, and made the injection. Almost immediately, the moaning stopped, and Carol lay still. Meta sighed and drew a hand over her brow, brushing away feathery wisps that escaped from the cap tied over her hair. Bartol? You're hurt? Not more burns, I hope. She looks just like a fluffy little kitten, Bart thought incongruously. Fatigue was beginning to blur his reactions. Only a few cuts, he said, in universal, though Meta had spoken Lari. In his weariness and pain, he was homesick for the sound of a familiar word. Ring and I were both caught in the hailstorm. He's badly hurt. Sit down here, Bart sat. Maida's hands were skillful and cool as she sponged the blood away from his forehead and sprayed it with some pleasantly cold, mint-smelling antiseptic. Bart leaned back, tireder than he knew, 
half closing his eyes. That hail must have been enormous. We heard it through the hull. Whatever possessed you to go out into it? It wasn't hailing when we left, Bart said wearily. The sun was as nice and green as it could be. He bit the words off, realizing he had made a slip. But the girl seemed not to hear, fastening a strip of plastic over a cut. She picked up his wrist. Bart flinched in spite of himself, and Maida nodded. I was afraid of that. It may be broken. Better let me x-ray it. No, Bart said harshly. It's all right. I just twisted it. Nothing's broken. Just strap it up. It's pretty badly swollen, the girl said, moving it gently. Does that hurt? I thought so. Bart set his teeth against a cry. It's all right, I tell you, just because it's black and blue. He heard her breath jolt out, her fingers clenched painfully on his wounded wrist. She did not hear his cry this time. And the sun was nice and green, she whispered. What are you? Bart felt himself slip sidewise. He thought for a moment that he would faint where he sat. Terrified, he looked up at Maida. Their eyes met, and she said, hardly moving her pale lips, Your eyes, they're like mine. Your eyelashes, dark, not white. You're not a lhari. The pain in his wrist suddenly blurred everything else, but Meta suddenly realized she was gripping it. She gave a little, gentle cry and cradled the abused wrist in her palm. No wonder you didn't want it x-rayed, she whispered. Biting her lip, she glanced, terrified at Carol, unconscious in the bunk. No, he can't hear us. I gave him a heavy shot of hypnin, poor fellow. Go ahead, Bart said bitterly. Yell for your keepers. Her gray eyes blazed at him for a moment. Then, gently, she laid his wrist on the table, went to the infirmary door, and locked it on the inside. She turned around, her face white. Even her lips had lost their color. Who are you? she whispered. Does it matter now? Shocked comprehension swept over her face. You don't think I'd tell them, she whispered. I heard talk in the Procyon port of a spy that had managed to get through on a lorry ship. Her face twisted. You, you must know about the man on the multi-phase. You know they'll make sure I can't hide anything dangerous to the lorry at the end of the voyage. Maida, concern for her swept over him. What will they do to you when they find out that you know and didn't tell? Her gray eyes were wide as a kitten's. Why, nothing. The lorry would never hurt anyone, would they? Brainwashed? He set his mouth grimly. I hope you never find out different. Why would they need to? She asked reasonably. They could just erase the memory. I never heard of a lorry actually hurting anyone. But something like this... She wavered, looking at him. You look so much like a lorry. How was it done? How could they do it? Poor fellow, you must be the... the loneliest man in the universe. Her voice was compassionate. Bart felt his throat tighten 
and had the awful feeling that he was going to cry. He reached with his good hand for hers, seeking the comfort of a human touch, but she flinched instinctively away. He was a monster to this pretty girl. It looks so real, she said helplessly. Yes, now I can see. You have tiny moons at the base of the nail, and the lorry don't. Her face worked. It's... it's horrifying. How could you? There was a noise in the corridor. Maida gasped and ran to unlock the door, stood back as the medic and the second officer came in, staggering under Ring's weight. Carefully, they put him into a bunk. The medic straightened, shaking his crest. Did you get that wrist taken care of, Bartol? Maida stepped between Bart and the officer, reaching for a roll of bandage. I'm working on it now, Rachel Mori, she said. It only wants strapping up. But her fingers trembled as she wound the gauze, pulling each fold tight. How's Ring? Needs quiet, grunted the medic, and a few sutures. Lucky you got him under cover when you did. Ring said weakly from his bunk, Bartol saved my life. I can think of plenty who'd have run for cover instead of staying out in that stuff long enough to drag me inside. Thanks, shipmate. Maida's hand, with a swift, hard pressure, lingered on Bart's shoulder as she cut the bandage and fastened the end. I don't think that will bother you much now, she whispered fleetingly. I didn't dare say it was broken or they'd insist on x-rays. If it hurts, I'll get you something later for the pain. If you keep it strapped up tight... It'll do, Bart said aloud. The tight bandage made it feel a little better, but he felt sick and dizzy. And when the medic turned and saw him, the officer said brusquely, Watch off for you, Bartol. I'll fix the sign-out sheet, but you go to your cabin and get yourself at least four hours of sleep. That's an order. Bart stumbled out of the cabin with relief. Safe in his own quarters, he flung himself down on his bunk, shaking all over. He'd come safely through one more nightmare, one more terror, for the moment. Had he put Maida in danger, too? Was there no end to this ceaseless fear? Not only for himself, but for others, the innocent bystanders who stumbled into plots they did not understand. You're doing this for the stars. It's bigger than your fear. It's bigger than you are, or any of the others. He was beginning to think it was a lot too big for him. End of chapter 9 Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe, and remember patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even I don't know, uh submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. 
The Colors of Space. Chapter 10. The green sun meristem lay far behind them. Carol's burns had healed. Only a faint pattern on Ring's forehead showed where six stitches had closed the ugly wound in his skull. Bart's wrist, after a few days of nightmarish pain when he tried to pick up anything heavy, had healed. Two more warp drive shifts through space had taken the Swiftwing far, far out to the rim of the known galaxy, and now the great crimson coal of Antares burned in their viewports. Antares had twelve planets, the outermost of which, far away now, at the furthest point in its orbit from the point of the Swiftwing's entry into the system, was a small, captive sun. No larger than the planet Earth, it revolved every ninety years around its huge primary. Small as it was, it was blazingly blue-white brilliant, and had a tiny planet of its own. After their stop on Antares 7, the largest of the inhabited planets in this system, where the Lhari spaceport was located, they would make a careful orbit around the Great Red Primary and land on the tiny worldlet of the blue-white secondary before leaving the Antares system. As Bart watched Antares growing in the viewports, he felt a variety of emotions. On the one hand, he was relieved that as his voyage in secrecy neared its official destination, he had as yet not incurred unmasking but he felt uncertain about his father's co-conspirators. Would they return him to human form and send him back to Vega, his part ended, or would they, unthinkably, demand that he go on into the Lari galaxy? What would he do if they did? At one moment, he entertained fantasies of going on into the Lari worlds, returning victorious with the secret of their fueling location or of the star drive itself. At another, he could not wait to be free of it all. He longed for the society of his own people, yet ached to think that this voyage between the stars must end so soon. They made planetfall at the largest Lhari spaceport Bart had seen. As always, the second officer was the first to go through decontam and ashore, returning with exchanged mail and messages for the Swiftwing's crew. He laughed when he gave Bartol a sealed packet. So, you're not quite the orphan we've always thought. Bart took it, his heart suddenly pounding, and walked away through the groups of officers and crew, eagerly debating how they would spend their port leave. He knew what it would be. It was on the letterhead of eight colors, and it contained no message, only an address and a time. He slipped away unobserved to the Mentorian part of the ship to borrow a cloak from Meta. She did not ask why he wanted it, and stopped him when he would have told her. I'd rather not know. She looked very small and very scared, and Bart wished he could comfort her but he knew she would shrink from him, repelled and horrified by his lorry skin, hair, claws. Yet she reached for his hand, gripping it hard in her own dainty one. Bartol, be careful, she whispered, then stopped. Bartol, that's a lorry name. What's your real one? Bart, Bart Steele. Good luck, Bart. There were tears in her gray eyes. 
With the blue cloak folded around his face, hands tucked in the slits at the side, he felt almost like himself. And as the strange crimson twilight folded down across the streets, laden with spicy smells and little fragrant gusts of wind, he almost savored the sense of being a conspirator, of playing for high stakes in a network of intrigue between the stars. He was off on an adventure and meant to enjoy it. The address he had been given was a lavish estate, not far from the spaceport, across a little gleaming lake that shimmered red, indigo, violet in the crimson sunset, surrounded by a low wall of what looked like purple glass. Bart, moving slowly through the gate, felt that eyes were watching him, and forced himself to walk with slow dignity. Up the path, up a low flight of black marble stairs, a door swung open and shut again, closing out the red sunset, letting him into a room that seemed dim after the months of lorry lights. There were three men in the room, but his eyes were drawn instantly to one, standing against an old-fashioned fireplace. He was very tall and quite thin, and his hair was snow-white, though he did not look old. Bart's first incongruous thought was, he'd make a better lorry than I would. His firm, commanding voice told Bart at once that this was the man in charge. You are Bartol? He extended his hand. Bart took it and found himself gripped in a judo hold. The other two men, leaping to place behind him, felt all over his body, not gently. No weapons, Montano. Look here. Save it, Montano said. If you're the right person, you'll understand. If not, you won't have much time to resent it. A very simple test. What color is that divan? Green. And those curtains? Darker green, with gold and red figures. The men released him, and the white-haired man smiled. So, you actually did it, Steele. I thought for sure the code message was a fake. He stepped back and looked Bart over from head to foot, whistling. Raynor Three is a genius. Claws and everything. What a deuce of a risk to take, though. You know my name, Bart said, but who are you? Suspicion came back into the dark eyes. Does that Mentorian cloak mean you've lost your memories, too? No, said Bart. It's simpler than that. I'm not Rupert Steele. I'm... His voice caught. I'm his son. The man looked startled and shocked. I suppose that means Rupert is dead. Dead! It came a little before he expected it then. So, you're Bart. He sighed. My name's Montano. This is Hedrick, and I suppose you recognize Raynor too. Bart blinked. It was the same face, but it was not grim like Raynor 1's, nor expressive and kindly like that of Raynor 3. This one just looked dangerous. But sit down, Montano said with a wave of his hand. Make yourself comfortable. Hedrick relieved Bart of his cloak. Raynor too put a cup of some steaming drink in his hand, passed him a tray of small hot fried things that tasted crisp and delicious. 
Bart relaxed, answering questions. How old? Only seventeen? And you came all alone on a lorry ship, working your way as an astrogator? I must say, you've got guts, kid. It was dangerously like the fantasy he had invented. But Montano interrupted at last. All right, this isn't a party, and we haven't all night. I don't suppose Bart has either. Enough time wasted. Since you walked into this, young Steele, I take it you know what our plans are after this? Bart shook his head. No, Raynor Three sent me to call off your plans because of my father. That sounds like Three, interrupted Raynor Two, entirely too squeamish. Montano said irritably, We couldn't have done anything without a man on the swift wing, and you know it. We still can't. Bart, I suppose you know about Larillus. Not by that name. Your next stop, the planetoid of the captive sun. That little hunk of bare rock out there is the first spot the Lari visited in this galaxy, even before Mentor. It's an inferno of light from that little blue-white sun, so of course they love it. It's just like home to them. When they found that the inner planets of Antares were inhabited, they built their spaceport here, so they'd have a better chance at trade. Montano scowled fiercely. But they wanted that little worldlet. So we went all over it to be sure there were no rare minerals there, and finally leased it to them, a century at a time. They mine the place for some kind of powdered lubricant that's better than graphite. It's all done by robot machinery, no one stationed there. Every time a lorry ship comes through this system, they stop there, even though there's nothing on Larillus except a landing field and some concrete bunkers filled with robot mining machinery. They'll stop there on the way out of this system, and that's where you come in. We need you on board to put the radiation counter out of commission. He took a chart from a drawer, spread it out on a tabletop. The simplest way would be to cut these two wires. When the lorry land, we'll be there, waiting for them. On board the lorry ship, there must be full records, coordinates of their home world, of where they go for their catalyst fuel, all that. Bart whistled. But won't the crew defend the ship? You can't fight Energon ray guns. Montano's face was perfectly calm. No, we won't even try. He handed Bart a small strip of pale yellow plastic. Keep this out of sight of the Mentorians, he said. The Lowry won't be able to see the color, of course. But when it turns orange, take cover. What is it? Radiation exposure film. It's exactly as sensitive to radiation as you are. When it starts to turn orange, it's picking up radiation. If you're aboard the ship, get into the drive chambers. They're lead-lined, and you'll be safe. If you're out on the surface, you'll be all right inside one of the concrete bunkers. But get under cover before it turns red, because by that time, every lorry of them will be stone-cold dead. Bart let the strip of plastic drop, staring in disbelief at Montano's cold, cruel face. Kill them? Kill a whole shipload of them? That's murder! Not murder, war. We're not at war with the Lari. 
we have a treaty with them. The Federation has, because they don't dare do anything else, Montano said, his face taking on the fanatic's light. But some of us dare do something. Some of us aren't going to sit forever and let them strangle all humanity, hold us down, let us die. It's war, Bart, war for economic survival. Do you suppose the lorry would hesitate to kill anyone if we did anything to hurt their monopoly of the stars? Or didn't they tell you about David Briscoe, how they hunted him down like an animal? But how do we know that it was lorry policy and not just some fanatic? Bart asked suddenly. The thought of the death of the elder Briscoe, and as always, he shivered with the horror of it. But for the first time, it came to him. Briscoe had provoked his own death. He had physically attacked the lorry, threatened them, goaded them to shoot him down in self-defense. I've been on shipboard with them for months. They're not wanton murderers. Raynor too made a derisive sound. Sounds like it might be three talking. Hedrick growled. Why waste time talking? Listen, young Steel, you'll do as you're told, or else. Who gave you the right to argue? Quiet, both of you. Montano came and laid his arm around Bart's shoulders, persuasively. Bart, I know how you feel, but can't you trust me? You're Rupert Steele's son, and you're here to carry on what your father left undone, aren't you? If you fail now, there may not be another chance for years. Maybe not in our lifetimes. Bart dropped his head in his hands. Kill a whole shipload of lorry. Innocent traitors? Bald, funny old Rugel? Stern Varangil? Ring? I don't know what to do! It was a cry of despair. Bart looked helplessly around at the men. Montano said, almost tenderly, You couldn't side with the lorry against men, could you? Could a son of Rupert Steele do that? Bart shut his eyes, and something seemed to snap within him. His father had died for this. He might not understand Montano's reasons, but he had to believe that Montano had them. All right, he said thickly. You can count on me. When he left Montano's house, he had the details of the plan, had memorized the location of the device he was to sabotage, and accepted, from Montano, a pair of dark contact lenses. The light's hellish out there, Montano warned. I know you're half Mentorian, but they don't even take their Mentorians out there. They're proud of saying no human foot has ever touched Larivis. When he got back to the Lari spaceport, Ring hailed him. Where have you been? I hunted the whole port for you. I wouldn't join the party till you came. What's a pal for? Bart brushed by him without speaking, disregarding Ring's surprised stare and went up the ramp. He reached his own cabin and threw himself down in his bunk, torn in two. Ring was his friend. Ring liked him. And if he did what Montana wanted, Ring would die. Ring had followed him and was standing in the cabin door, watching him in surprise. Bartol, is something the matter? Is there anything I can do? Have you had more bad news? 
Bart's torn nerves snapped. He raised his head and yelled at Ring. Yes, there is something. You could quit following me around and just let me alone for a change. Ring took a step backward. Then he said, very softly, Suit yourself, Bartol. Sorry. And noiselessly, his white crest held high, he glided away. Bart's resolve hardened. Loneliness had done odd things to him. Thinking of Ring, a lorry, one of the freaks who had killed his father as a friend. If they knew who he was, they would turn on him, hunt him down as they'd hunted Briscoe, as they'd hunted his father, as they'd hounded him from Earth to Procyon. He put his scruples aside. He'd made up his mind. They could all die. What did he care? He was human, and he was going to be loyal to his own kind. End of chapter 10